What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health has probably taken you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. If you've struggled with your gut, then we're sure you would have come across the term leaky gut, or may have even been diagnosed with it at some point. Leaky gut syndrome has gained significant attention in recent years, with claims that it may be the root cause of a wide range of health issues, from digestive problems to autoimmune diseases, and even mental health conditions. But what exactly is leaky gut and is it a valid medical diagnosis? I'm flying solo today as dad has to put his patients first over this podcast. He is forgiven, but I'm so excited to be joined by our first guest, my friend and internationally respected dietitian, Kirsten Jackson, who is also known as the IBS dietitian. Kirsten is a UK consultant dietitian specializing in gut health, holding numerous formal qualifications and training. From being a leading dietitian at King's College Hospital in Dubai, where she now resides, to now running an online IBS clinic called the Food Treatment Clinic, Kirsten continues to help those suffering with irritable bowel syndrome and other gut ailments. Excitingly, Kirsten has also recently signed a book deal with Bloomsbury Publishing, and you will be able to purchase her book in spring 2024. So, if you've ever wondered whether leaky gut is a real condition, or just another health fad, this episode is for you. Here we go. Dad is not here. It's just me. Good. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to talk about this topic. So before we get into it, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So I have three questions for you. Are you ready? Yes. Go ahead. (laughs) Right. Question number one, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? So I seen this question. I was trying to think of a really cool answer. And I honestly, I'm not that cool of a person. I'm just like a bit of a geek, to be honest. So I'd probably say something like a tomato because it's not actually a vegetable. So it kind of like catches people out a little bit. And I feel like (laughs) it's probably, I don't know. Like I sometimes feel like people presume I'm a certain way and I'm actually not. And this is a very geeky explanation, but that's the only thing I could think of. I love that that was so you. (laughs) And all right, my second question. If you had to choose one food item to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chocolate. Easily. I'd have to probably take a lot of fiber supplements because you definitely wouldn't go to the toilet with that diet. I was going to say that will constipate, (laughs) clog you up. (laughs) But I think I could live with it, you know? Chocolate is the best food. I would. Even, do you know what? I still find it very hard to pick one food because I was going to go mushroom, but I don't think I could survive just on mushrooms. No. Well, I'd probably get the other end. I'll probably get the shits, you know? Getting clogged up. All right. And our final one is what is one thing that people may not know about you? So I specialize in IBS as a dietitian, and everybody, including the media, they presume that's how I got into dietetics. I had this condition, you know, because it's a lovely story, isn't it? It made you passionate about the area. 
But actually, I was already a dietitian when I got IBS, which I always think is quite ironic because you would think you would know how to resolve your own gut. And initially, I had no idea. I was throwing all this evidence, like trying probiotic, everything at it. And it wasn't until I realized that actually it's about the how, not just the what we do. It's the structure and things. So just a little bit of, I guess, backup for anyone that's listening out there with IBS and gut problems. It's not that easy as just following a diet. It takes a little bit of time. But you've also been outspoken that you've got celiac disease as well. Yep. I've got, you know, blessed in two areas with gut health. (laughs) So yeah, I got diagnosed with celiac disease in like my early 20s. And I actually thought at the time, I was anyone who's been through this understand that I was quite grateful. I was like, oh, finally an answer. And initially I got a lot, obviously a lot better on that gluten-free diet. And then no, no, um, I actually then got IBS because I'd obviously had this disrupted gut for a number yeah. of years. You know, every cloud, this is what has then given me more understanding to help people, you know? Absolutely. How long, so how long have you been now living with celiac disease? Probably about 10 years, nine years, maybe. Yeah. Do you think it, is it getting easier to manage mm. it, let's say eating out, or do you still think we have a long way to go? I think it depends on where you live. So definitely easier in Europe. And even then it changes depending on which country you're in because of the food labeling laws. But I now live yeah. in Dubai and the labeling laws are very different here. And we have, mm. you know, like a Snickers bar in the UK is gluten-free, but here it's not. So it dep- it's very difficult, I'd say, in the UAE because of some of food labels. But it gets easier with time, as does any condition. But I'd say, is it getting easier in terms of options in the UAE? Maybe not because of celiacs needing that real strict gluten-free, you know, no cross-contamination. Yeah. All right. Shall we get into it? Yes. Let's, let's talk about leaky gut. So here's the thing. Why does this term make us cringe so much? Every time we hear it, just it does, doesn't it? And I was actually at a conference with dietitians on Friday, and Nick Trot, who's very well known in celiac, stood up and was like, Can nobody mention that term, leaky gut syndrome? Because it's just like, I can't explain it. It's almost like slang, isn't it? It's not even, and we see, I guess, in the medical profession, more dietitians, doctors, everybody, we see the really dark side of this term that gets thrown around. But it's just BS, isn't it? I completely agree. I feel, I mean, I don't feel, I know that leaky gut has become this marketing term that this whole wellness unicorn society, as I call them, has taken advantage of that term to sell products, to sell tests, to sell a lot of these false promises. And I think it's this term that has this catch all impression that it is the cause of all ailments. So For those who may not understand what leaky gut is, do you want to give a bit of an idea to our listeners? What is like, what is the definition of leaky gut? Yeah. So the definition, I don't even know if there is a definition technically because it technically doesn't exist, but leaky gut syndrome, people who, you know, support this notion, we'll call it, is basically when the cell, your lining of your gut wall becomes more permeable so it becomes leaky us so it allows pathogens or things that are going to cause us disease or inflammation to go into our bodies now technically your gut can become more or less permeable which is more of a scientific term so we could say more or less leaky at times which i'm sure we'll cover shortly but this idea of leaky gut syndrome which is what they propose as an actual condition means that when your gut becomes then more permeable pathogens come into your body cause inflammation and then cause a whole host of disease which apparently and there's just no evidence to support these ideas i 
I had to research a lot about this, whether it was for our podcast episode or even just for the book or just in the past. And I think, again, why it's so controversial is because there's this lack of consensus amongst us medical professionals regarding its existence as a distinct standalone condition. We don't have a standardized definition. We don't have standardized diagnostic criteria, so valid tests or even standardized treatment approaches. And look, when I explain to clients that come to clinic with a diagnosis of leaky gut, you know, initially I used to just roll my eyes and just go, here we go. But I feel like it's how we communicate, how we communicate what it is and what it is not. And that it, you know, it is for me, I was so look, we could be looking at it as a symptom rather than a standalone condition. And I generally use the examples of, you know, if you do suffer from a condition like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease, where your intestinal lining is compromised, then yes, there could be an element of your, you know, that intestinal barrier being leaky. But as a standalone condition, I feel like it's a very dangerous diagnosis to have because we might be missing out on actual medically, you know, justified conditions to be diagnosed. Yeah, exactly. So it's a bit like as we were talking before we started the podcast, and it's a bit like saying to somebody, you've got a headache syndrome. You know, that's no such thing. You might have a headache because you're dehydrated or you have a medical condition, but there's no headachey syndrome. It would be this, you know, similar thing. Exactly. So if we had to look at the science just for a second, again, not to lose people, we can maybe just quickly define what this intestinal lining is or the intestinal barrier. So from my side, I, you know, I always explain to my clients that it plays an important role in maintaining the balance between, you know, you absorbing nutrients and preventing any harmful substances from like crossing into your bloodstream. What else would you add to that? Yeah. So it's difficult because we want our clients, you know, to understand it, but equally it can be quite complicated. And I feel like that's where some of the people who are, you know, supporting this idea of leaky gut syndrome will draw people in because they use these scientific words and it sounds real, but that's why it's good to have an understanding of the science behind it. But yeah, it's a very, this is not just one line of cells that make up our gut wall. It's one line of cells and we've got gut microbes, other things, defensins. There's lots of things going on there. And if any one of those things, I suppose, is compromised, that's where our gut can start to maybe let things in that shouldn't be coming in. If you have to think of the common symptoms right? Of people presenting with leaky gut, again, quote unquote, what would they be just based on your experience? Everything is apparently related to leaky gut, (laughs) you know, oh, it's tired in the morning, maybe you've got leaky gut syndrome, got a headache, it seems to be everything. So Mm. from bloating to brain fog, constipation, loose stools, stomach pain, everything seems to be related back. And again, this comes back to this, there's no regulation of this thing it's not really a condition it's just a symptom it seems to be everything is apparently related back when in reality there's probably very few symptoms are related to actually having an increased permeable in your gut i agree i mean the list of symptoms that you see with a lot of these clients and initially if they you know guaranteed if someone struggled with their gut they would have googled or they would have come across leaky gut as a diagnosis. And just like you said, I think if you look at the symptoms list, it's about 20 plus, including things like food intolerance and sensitivities, rashes, headaches, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, gas, you name it. And 
it's a rabbit hole. It's an absolute rabbit hole. And I feel like it's become this, I don't know how to put it, but this whole world of alternative and complementary medicine, not that I want to badmouth it, but I just feel like they are taking advantage of the most vulnerable people who are desperate, smacking something sexy to sell like leaky gut and presenting all these false, you know, hope or promises to them. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any stories to share maybe of clients that you've come across at clinic? Yeah, lots of lots of stories, <laughs> but one that kind of was more recent, which would be the sort of very typical kind of scenario. So I had a new client. The reason why they'd come to see me is they'd actually gone to their doctor. The doctor did a few general tests to rule out things like celiac disease, which is good. And they all came back negative. They got to hold it was IBS, try the low FODMAP diet, here's a probiotic and off they went on their own. These didn't work because we know that they actually need more help than this. So they thought there's no way I can have IBS. These things are not working for me. So they started to become quite, you know, despondent towards normal Western medical care, let's say. And they looked for the alternative therapy route and what came up, leaky gut syndrome. So they seen an alternative therapist, got diagnosed with this and ended up on hundreds, if not maybe a thousand dollars worth of supplements, a lot of supplements. They had to pay for additional testing as well because their doctor didn't rightly so offer it, but yeah. it was sold to them as, oh, your doctor should have offered you this. And then they ended up in my clinic months later, a lot thousands of dollars down. And actually they did have IBS. They just were never supported correctly in how to manage it, you know, and tailor that science to them because it is complicated. I can share very similar stories. And I think this is why I like to highlight the dangers of just saying it's leaky gut or getting that diagnosis. So one of the stories, I'm not going to say is it most recent. Yeah, one of, one of my most recent clients, you know, she's been struggling for actually years with her gut. And again, the typical story, you know, they've given her three, four, five different diagnoses, but her problems still persisted. And because the hospital, or let's say the medical system, wasn't as empathetic or forgiving or just giving, you know, didn't give her the answers, which is again, a very common scenario that we see. She ended up working with a naturopath for about a year and paid for so many unreliable tests out of pocket and so many supplements up until she saw me and she was like, you know, nothing is working despite all of that. And I was diagnosed by this naturopath as having leaky gut. And this is what I've been doing. And I remember her, she was on a very strict elimination diet as well. Again, typical no gluten, no dairy for about five years, I think five, six years. Long story short, I mean, we decided that she should actually see a gastroenterologist, which she has, and then working together with a gastroenterologist, long story short, she was actually diagnosed with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, lactose intolerance as well. And then we just approached that accordingly. And she started to feel like herself again and actually, you know, celebrating her poo because, you know, one of her struggles were just not knowing what a normal poo is. But that has taken her, I think, this whole process, probably about 10 years up until she came to that conclusion and actually, you know, solving the issue per se. So this is, you know, one of the biggest reasons, and I know I keep repeating that, one of the biggest reasons why this term makes me cringe is because it has taken advantage of the most vulnerable people that have struggled with so many years and ended, you know, end up pursuing all, you know, the all these you know, treatment plans that are unwarranted, strict elimination diets, and the thousands of dollars that they need to spend on supplements. Yeah. So 
Speaking of, you know, unproven tests, have you come across any, you know, interesting testing that, you know, comes alongside or in parallel with that leaky gut diagnosis? Yeah. And just before I go on to that, I was just going to say, just going back to the whole, I think it's very easy. Sometimes we sit here and might come across as like, oh, you know, make sure you get the right person to work with. But I do think as health professionals, we need to also do maybe more work and find out why at that point when they go to see the doctor, are they just lost? And unfortunately, often they do feel or people we feel I've been there in that situation where you feel like no one's listening to you. No one takes you seriously. You get comments like, oh, it's just IBS or it's probably stress. And then you go away and you just feel a bit like you wasted someone's time. And then you Mm. struggle for months, if not years alone. And then guess what? Someone's sending you this nice ad. So I think we as health professionals do definitely need to do more work to stop the leak of people, you know, from, from doing the system. But testing wise, yes, so many different tests. So there is no test to actually test for gut permeability. So therefore, there's just random tests that seem to be, again, supposed to be diagnosing this. So things like stool tests I've seen, microbiome analysis, breath tests randomly. I don't even know where they've got the theory behind that. Skin tests, IgG testing, which is a type of supposed food intolerance testing, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but various different types. I don't know what you've seen in your practice. Very similar ones. I think ones that have been highly promoted in different alternative medicine practices and naturopathic clinics is testing something called zonulin or measuring your zonulin levels. So for those who are unfamiliar with the term, zonulin is a protein that controls these tight junctions between your cells along your intestinal lining. And again, the advocates or whatever you want to call them, or based on the poor quality research that's out there, it has been suggested that having high zonulin levels can indicate intestinal permeability or leaky gut. But having high zonulin levels are not specific to leaky gut syndrome and can be found in various other conditions, such as celiac disease or IBD, and that's inflammatory bowel disease or even people who are healthy. So for that reason, it has a very limited specificity, but also there's a lack of standardization when it comes to these tests. And there's really no clinical significance. Like we don't have a standardized, you know, how do we translate that into clinical practice if you do have high zonulin levels? But because it sounds really fancy and there's a test out there for it, people will go for it. Yeah, I actually had, it's funny that you brought the zonulin name up because the first time I ever heard about it, and bearing in mind, I was probably a dietitian. So I had already done a degree and then I've already been a dietitian <laughs> for like seven years. Somebody actually commented on my Instagram post where I was like, look, gluten is not a trigger in IBS. And they were really quite abusive about it. And they were saying, zonulin, I mean, if we eat gluten, then our zonulin levels increase. And I was like, what the hell is zonulin? Like, and I had to look <laughs> into this. And it, I was quite annoyed because it took me about three hours to go around all the science and everything. And basically, this is like protein that basically just increases a little bit. And yes, when you eat gluten, it will increase a little bit. Yes, that can change the permeability of your gut in that instance. But that's it doesn't cause widespread inflammation. doesn't cause- Absolutely not, exactly. Permanent. So people are, and this is where I feel like sometimes a little bit of knowledge is a bad thing because then this guy was quoting to me, but this was done in Harvard. 
And I was like, no, there's a Harvard Medical Journal, which is two different things. And then it was like from the 1920s, this research, and it was done like in a test tube and it showed this. Do you see what I mean? So they're like, oh, look, it's research and they don't even have the qualifications to understand it. I feel is the most harmful for the public because it looks real when they're saying, oh, here's the research study. And actually... That's not what they're trying to say. They're drawing these conclusions. And as you said, it looks sexy. It looks, you know, scientific and it's causing a lot of harm. Do you know what? I have a funny story. Like the first time I've come across Zonulin was also on social media. And I just felt horrible. Like at one point I just doubted my degree. Like I'm a, you know, gut health dietitian, you know, I worked in gastroenterology and I've never come across Zonulin. So you start to question. And then again, doing the research and us, you know, having the background of critical thinking or being able to understand research. I'm not, I'm still not, I would say the expert when it comes to looking at clinical studies and so on, but I do have some sort of background that maybe qualifies me more than some, you know, Joe XYZ on social media. But I don't know how we can change that. I don't know how we can change the narrative. I mean, now that you're seeing it, People with medical degrees can be spewing pseudoscience and even promoting a lot of these tests. I mean, one example I use and I've spoken and I've been very vocal about it is these food intolerance tests, these IgG food intolerance tests, and even seeing some dietitians promote them. That infuriates me. Yes. And it annoys me. You're probably the same as me. It annoys me more than Joe blocks from the public who's like just a PT or not to downgrade PTs but obviously they don't have four-year degree in dietetics it annoys me that we see registered dietitians or doctors promoting these more because I'm like guys you've been through like a four to what eight year scientific degree so you know that this is BS and yet you choose to push this on people who are vulnerable to make money and to me that is the lowest of the low and it's also frustrating because I know in the UK in Australia I'm not aware of other countries as much but there's high levels of regulation about what registered dietitians can do same as doctors and yet in other countries there isn't and this is causing a lot of confusion online actually because things like if I promoted that test I would lose my license exactly and this is what I always tell my clients I mean again I think maybe about once or twice a week, I will get someone that has had this intolerance test or would ask me about this food intolerance testing. And I've even had clients that ask me to refer them to these food intolerance tests. I was like, look, A, I would lose my license, B, explaining why they're not valid. And even, you know, explain that there's money to be made. I don't know about you, but I've been approached by these companies so many times and I still do. And you do make a revenue out of it after, you know, once you promote X amount of tests, you get a nice chunk of money. Yeah. And for anyone listening, when you're re- registered in the UK, and I think the same in Australia as well, you're actually not allowed to do that. So even if I like I regularly recommend certain probiotics, I'm not allowed to sit there and like give like an affiliate link to the client I'm seeing and say like and make money from it because it's unethical. So even in yeah. the cases where there is evidence for it, you're not. So it's just bad on so many levels. It really is. All right. So we've got the zonulin test, which we know is invalid. We've got these food intolerance tests. Maybe again, I I don't know if we want to go into too much detail because I've spoken about these food intolerance tests in multiple episodes, but what are the most common ones that you see in practice, like for these food intolerance tests? 
Yeah, so because there are various ones. So in previous, you've got Vega testing, hair testing, all these different ones. But to be honest, the one that is really taking over is the IgG testing. So IgG testing, for anyone that hasn't seen it or doesn't know, is it's again, looks really sciencey and it's about £600, $600, if not more. And basically they take some a blood sample look sciencey and they look at IgG levels in your body and so you get this whole report of different foods that you're more or less likely to be intolerant to but the problem is that IgG is part of the immune system and intolerances don't involve the immune system that's allergies and allergies don't even involve that part of the immune system so what you typically find is even if you took that same test 100 times you'd get 100 different results it's just completely random of course, people get confused. Even if I'm saying this, we know in IBS is up to a 50% placebo impact. So you're paying $600, look sciencey. So, you know, you might actually feel better by chance. This is obviously, I'm not recommending it by the way. I'm just explaining why you might see reviews online going, this is great, et cetera. But realistically, long-term, it's going to lead to health problems. And then the other thing is people dramatically change their diet. Suddenly you can't eat anything outside the house or any processed food. It has to all be you know, reading the labels, clean food to a certain extent. And then also, and chances are, all those foods that you cannot eat anymore, maybe they did get something that you are intolerant to. So it's not great. So best case scenario, you know, you might feel a bit better because of those other factors I've talked about. But long term, you're on this very restrictive diet and it can lead to a lot of nutritional deficiencies and also things like eating disorders, all sorts. Yeah. And this, I mean, another thing that I highlight, I'm very vocal about is please do not take your kids to get one of these food intolerance tests done. I have seen that in the past that has ended, you know, kids being extremely malnourished. I don't work in pediatrics anymore, but back when I was in Dubai, because I know it's very, very popular in Dubai, I used to get that a lot. So this is just a little word of warning. Adults and kids alike should stay away from these tests. So now you mentioned, I mean, we're talking about these unproven tests, but Maybe let's talk about the promises or the treatments that come along with leaky gut. So again, from your experience, what are the big ones? You know, what have your clients done in the past when they've been diagnosed with leaky gut? Yeah, so various things. And again, all of them seem to be something that the person recommending them is profiting from. So I'll always say to them, oh, where did you get these supplements? And they said, oh, well, they just sent me a shopping list. And I'm like, okay, fine. So um, it's literally a shopping list. Exactly. (laughs) So you're paying for your consultation, you're paying for your test, then you're paying for all these supplements and all of it's going to that therapist. But anyway, so typically various herbal supplements that claim to have different properties, no scientific evidence behind them, prebiotics, probiotics. These tend to be the sort of typical ones. I'm not sure if you're seeing anything in addition elimination diets i mean like being on its very very strict elimination diets and it's always gluten and dairy, dairy that go <laughs> because they're inflammatory as these proponents claim and i don't think people realize the impact it can have on one's quality of life and how restrictive it can be and how unsustainable it can be i think gluten is another big one that we talk about And I've spoken about this before, and I'm sure you agree that there's only a very small percentage of people that need to avoid gluten, such as yourself, which is very very upsetting when I actually have to eat the crappy gluten-free bread and I see other people who could just eat normal bread. Exactly. Yeah. And 
we do have a lot of gluten-containing grains like barley, for example, that is known to have extremely positive effects on our intestinal barrier. So, you know, I can guarantee that everyone that's been diagnosed with leaky gut has eliminated gluten, dairy, probably the nightshades. Of course, we're going to throw that yeah. term in. Might have been prescribed a concoction of celery juice. I don't know if they've got coffee enemas too, but do you see where I'm going? Like, <laughs> I'm trying not to like scream and yell, but just everything. If, if someone suspects leaky gut, what do you think are the steps that they need to take? Yeah, such a good question because there is obviously some steps that I'm missing. The fact that people are not ending up where they need to be. So if you think you've got leaky gut syndrome, so any of these symptoms, you know, I think even like brain fog or digestive symptoms or rashes, you need to be going to your doctor to start with. And I understand, I'm not saying every doctor is wonderful in the world. It's the same as, you know, we're sitting here as dietitians and we'll tell you not every dietitian is wonderful in the world. We're not, you know, going to pretend, but go and see your doctor, speak to them, tell them the symptoms. And if they don't, if you feel like you're not being listened to, go and see another doctor, get that diagnosis. And if that might be a diagnosis where they actually give you a proper diagnosis, or it might be that they eliminate really common conditions. Now, at that point, if it's digestive symptom related, then you need to then go and see a dietitian, registered dietitian, who has got the training in gut health specifically, to help you kind of move forward, find out what it is you're actually intolerant to, which will only be one very small piece of the puzzle, and actually help you to improve gut function. And then if you have actually symptoms that are not gut related, so say things like your skin rashes, go and see it, ask to be referred to a dermatologist if your family medicine or your general practitioner doctor is not able to help you. So to stay within that kind of that medical field and don't give up is what I would say, because everybody has different approaches to things, but don't go and see a doctor once and think, oh, you know, they didn't listen to me or they didn't do any tests. Go for a second opinion. It's your body, your full rights to do that. And you will find that you get something that's safe, it's tailored to you, and you can really make progress with those symptoms. I agree. This is one thing that I tell people is just don't give up. You will find the right support out there and you will find people who will listen to you and actually take the time as well. You know, I always tell my clients that have struggled for 15 years. I was like, look, it's taken you 15 years until you've ended up here, you know, in my office and, you know, at clinic and let's see what we can do. I think the other thing is, and again, not to badmouth a lot of, you know, these alternative therapies, but if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And someone's trying to sell you things, just like you said, if there is, you know, if they're trying to sell you things that are, you know, going to cost you out of pocket question. Exactly. And do you know, one of the things that I don't think people realize is actually the cost of healthcare. So if you take the UK as an example, most healthcare is on the national health service. So it's paid for by the government. So time and time again, I'll hear, oh, the doctor didn't prescribe me any herbal supplements, probably because they're trying to save money. Herbal supplements, I know it's a cost to us as a public if we're trying them, which we shouldn't be, but it's very cheap, very, very cheap for the National Health Service compared to, you know, somebody of IBS having to go back again and again and again for doctor's appointments. So if there was evidence that these things worked, you would be getting them. They wouldn't be blocking you from having these things because in terms of healthcare, they're very cheap for a service to, you know, pay that $10 or $20 or whatever it is compared to the thousands of dollars it costs for you to keep going back again. So if the doctor is not recommending it, it's because there's no evidence behind it, not because they're trying to save money. Yeah. Now that we're talking, maybe, you know, before we wrap things up, how do we look after our intestinal barrier? 
Yeah, so important. I'm so glad you put this question in to kind of wrap up because I think sometimes we're very like guilty of that. Don't do this. Don't. Do I that. know. I feel like I don't want to make it sound like we're just venting, and you exactly. know, it's just a, a long. We are rant. kind of venting. We've this has been a long time coming, so we are venting, but also what can we do so it's so many things that you can do and it's not just one thing and it definitely doesn't come from eliminating it comes from adding things back in so the way I like to speak to clients when talking about gut health and you know improving this intestinal lining is you need to consider that gut health is multifactorial so we're going to be looking at nutrition movement sleeping patterns and then also the mental well-being you don't need to look at all of it all at once but you can think maybe in my lifestyle what's the one thing maybe you're going through a very stressful period so maybe little things like going through actually just trying meditation daily consistently is going to make a huge difference looking at nutrition it's not really about what you're eating sometimes it's about what you're not eating you should be eating, you know, around 30 different sources of plants per week, because we know from research, this seems to be the optimal amount to get a good level of diversity and numbers of different live microorganisms in the gut. Again, eating a higher fiber diet. Um, and I understand if you have got sensitive gut, it's not just that easy to eat tons of fiber. So that's where working with a dietitian can help you navigate that to get back to being able to tolerate it. Looking at sleep, we talk bang on it all the time about nutrition movement and then no one's really talking about this the sleep element so looking at are you actually getting enough hours sleep in the night we know that that is directly linked to gut health and in some ways for some people it could be actually a really easy win going to bed just consistently at the same time every night and then movement again how many times do we overcomplicate this must go to a spin class must join the local mm. crossfit crew what about going for a walk this is beneficial. It's outside. We know that outside exercise is really good for the microbiota. So there's lots of things that you can do, but I'd say it's very easy also to become quite overwhelmed. Exact when we have digestive problems, and we can both say this because me and Sandra both have got digestive problems. <laughs> we are people that are too busy and too stressed and too much. Perhaps just take it one step at a time and think this week, listening to this podcast, what is the one thing I can implement every day that's important? And just take it from there. I don't know if you've got much to add on that rant. No, I was just going to say, you literally, you know, take the words out of my mouth and people would say, oh my God, you guys sound exactly similar, but Hey, we work <laughs> in this field and we know what works for our clients. And we've been doing this for quite some time. And look, I, again, you've heard me say this multiple times. We work based on four pillars, especially when it comes to gut health, mind, movement, nutrition, sleep. We know that if one pillar is off, it's like a domino effect. And we do see there is science out there to look at the impact on these pillars and our gut health. From a nutritional perspective, I've highlighted so much about fiber. And I always have that food first policy before jumping on any supplement bandwagon. Let's look at your food. And gut health is about inclusion and not exclusion. So I talk a lot about prebiotic fibers. So that's, you know, how do we nourish our inner ecosystem and getting that diversity in? So, yep, I also go by these 30 plants a week for diversity. And it's not easy. That's the thing, you know, and this is why I say, if you try to do everything at the same time, you're just going to be overwhelmed and everything's going to come crumbling down. Mm -hmm. So take it, set a theme every month for, you know, it can be right. 30 plants is my goal for the next four to six weeks and then maintain that. The next thing, I mean, I do I say I work a lot in this whole supplement field, but especially when it comes to probiotics, I feel like a lot of people jump on that probiotic bandwagon. And I always advise clients to 
treat them like medication. I think with probiotics, you know, you need to know what strain, what type of probiotic, what type of microbe you need to address what symptom. It's not just a, you know, free for all and let's see what, what happens. And it comes at a cost too. So a lot of these probiotic supplements are costly. So I would say about 80% or even 80 to 90% of the time I get my clients off of these supplements and they start feeling a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And they save money too. Um, and then there's this whole field of postbiotics that we're seeing. So I always use that example of, you know, these byproducts of our gut microbes fermenting all these diverse fibers, these byproducts of fermentation are going to be in the limelight. And they are known to play a role in protecting our intestinal lining and even strengthening these junctions to prevent leakiness per se. So There's a lot of science out there when it comes to how to protect our intestinal lining, but maybe it's not sexy enough. I don't know what we're doing wrong. (laughs) I know. I feel like if I was to, you know, I get the media contacting me all the time, like, what do you think this and that? And it always Mm -hmm. comes back to the only diet I think I'd ever recommend for gut health is a Mediterranean diet. And it's just not that, you know, fun, is it? Like eat fish (laughs) twice a week, eat your whole grains. But I don't know where we've gone wrong. I really don't. But honestly, guys, if you want a diet to follow, that Mediterranean diet, and you can adapt any, you know, any kind of cultural food even into that, where we're having those whole grains, we're having the vegetables, fruits, and stuff. The only thing I would say is there is often, I guess, this thing, I guess, on online and things when you type in, you know, good gut health diet, mm-hmm. we are talking about all this fiber, and there is obviously people with that sensitive gut, and they can't just follow eating loads of fruits and veg. So. If that's you, we understand it. We're not going to say get on with it, but you probably need a little bit more help to navigate and find out what those intolerances are, if there are any, and just really reduce your gut sensitivity. And then what you'll find is typically you can get back to a relatively normal diet. Yeah, I agree. And even, you know, going back to fiber, I will say it's really about finding that sweet spot that works for you and working with a dietitian, working, you know, with us, it just helps you find that sweet spot because, you know, again, these recommendations can be quite generalized, but you're an individual with very specific needs and very specific symptoms. All right. To wrap things up, where can people find you? So people can find me either on the website, thefoodtreatmentclinic.com. There's lots of free blogs and things like that, which are science-backed, as you probably gathered from today, (laughs) or on Instagram, which is at the dot IBS dietitian. I'll put those in the show notes. And do you have any exciting news? Yes, I do. Thank you for prompting me. I'm just like, no, what's going on? (laughs) You always prompting me to, you know, talk about this. So I have excitingly got a book deal with Bloomsbury Publishing. So they are going to be, the book will be due. It's all about IBS. It's called The Take Control. It's going to be something around that about IBS, but it'll be due sort of available next springtime so very exciting but really i'm hoping just like we've done in this podcast today it's going to be all about the science around ibs which is of course what we need but it's not another gut health science book it's about like okay this is what we're going to do today and it's that step-by-step approach so it's yes you're getting more educated but it's also helping you so hopefully we'll get some good feedback and you know let me know what you guys think when it's available well, congratulations hey, from one author to another. Oh, it's going you. to be a journey, but I'm really looking forward to it. But thank you again for making the time. And I hope to our listeners, this wasn't just another rant, but they've taken some, you know, valuable messages from it. 
And I thank you all again for joining us and we'll be back and hopefully with dad with another episode that's all about your gut. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.